like? And so it kind of led me to think then, okay, how do you define father? Based on your experience, based on your vision, you're going to define father probably from a lot of your own personal experiences. Again, good, bad, or otherwise, that's how you define father. And so I was kind of just doing a lot of searching around, thinking, okay, what does this look like uh, from a lot of different perspectives? And I came across one particular definition I thought was interesting. And it was given by a pastor by the name of John Tyson. He actually is a pastor of a church in New York City. He said this, A father is an image bearer and a son of God, entrusted with power and responsibility to create, to cultivate, to care and guard the life or lives that they've been given. This is for their joy and the good of others. I thought that was a pretty solid definition. Now, you could have a lot of different, various definitions to it, but I thought that was pretty good. And that actually came on the heels of a study that was done in regards to children being raised in Christian homes or in the church. And, and the study and the statistics that came from this study in 2019, when it was published, I think it was done in 2018, the results published in 2019, and in looking at that study, it said that according to this study, only 46% of children say their faith was influenced by their father. I thought that was interesting. And that was Christian homes, that only 46% say their faith was influenced by their father. And there was a lot of other statistics and, and you know, what they're looking at, but that one just kind of jumped off the page for me. I thought, wow, that's interesting. And, it, and, I, and I say interesting because it wasn't heartbreaking, it wasn't powerful, it wasn't anything, but it was just kind of one that stuck out and I went, hmm, something to look at. Would you think in a Christian home that number would be higher? Maybe in your mind, would you think that number would be a lot higher, especially in Christian homes that are being raised in the church, that the influence of the father in the home, would that number would maybe be a lot higher, maybe in the 60s or 70s, or I don't know. I just thought it was interesting, but that's what we're going to kind of jump off and look at today. In fact, one of the things said in that study was this. It says, they found, speaking of the children raised in Christian homes, it says, they found loving community elsewhere and later in life. They tend to work out their faith with their partner or spouse and, and friends who feel like family. They have, in other words, found refuge and stability, perhaps for the first time, in a faith and community that they chose and cultivated on their own. To them, and this is the statement, Christianity isn't an heirloom. It's an anchor. And I thought that right there was another powerful statement. <clears throat> and then, because I think what a lot of us might think of is, well, raise our children in Christian home, we, we make church a priority, we do the retreats, we do the small groups, we do the... The bake sales, we do, maybe if the opportunity presented itself, we, we send our kids to, to Christian school or, or whatever it might be, enveloping our family in the things of God. So maybe part of our mentality is, well, they'll be Christian soon enough. They'll accept the Lord soon enough. So maybe our mentality as dads has been, okay, they'll just grab onto it at some point. Sooner than later, hopefully, right, is the prayer, but at some point, it'll be there. It'll be something that we have passed on to our children. So, 
if that's one way to look at it. And I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with that, that we're praying for our children, hoping that at some point they grab onto this idea. But we, what we cannot say is just because they were raised in a Christian home, they should accept Christ. It is not passed on in your DNA. And that's something that we need to understand. And we're going to carry that on. So again, keeping in mind that statement, Christianity isn't an heirloom, it's an anchor. So what does that look like? Especially today with this massive cultural and societal shift that we've seen. And I think all of us in the room could understand and, and see that the days that we're living in are vastly different. I'm not saying good, I'm not saying bad. Just different. Comparatively to maybe when we all grew up. Go back to when you were a, a teen or whatever else and compare culture and society because no matter what era you're in, when they were celebrating Father's Day back in 1910 in the state of Washington, those kids were probably dealing with something that for their era in their way was a cultural shift, right? Doing everything they could to excuse me, maybe separate themselves from their parents' way of life or, or whatever else. And you go to the 20s or you go to the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, 60s, 70s, you name it, there's a, always going to be cultural and societal influences that are going to, you can say attack, infiltrate, affect, influence our children, influence ourselves in our home. So whatever it might be, I think ultimately, if we believe the fact that gospel word, God's word doesn't change, as his word states and that we believe, that it is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, therefore his word doesn't change, then we as fathers, if we are in Christ, then we should look at the definition of what a father is from a biblical perspective. Wouldn't you say? Should be something that we should aspire to. That we should attain and there's so many things to look at number one christ being our example doesn't the word of god say that fix your eyes on jesus and we'll come back to that but fix your eyes on jesus no matter what you're doing and ladies moms wives please understand that i want you to hear this as well and there's some challenge to you in this too because there is accountability in the unity of your marriage so just like last month when we spoke to moms, that dads and guys and husbands, there is an accountability factor of who you are to your wife as you raise your children together, as you uh, continue to pursue your relationship with one another. Same thing applies today. So ladies, please don't tune out. So here's the question. If we're going to look at the role of a father from a biblical perspective, the question then is, who must a father be? But more than that today, for our conversation and our learning, what must a father do? Because you can't just hope for the best. You can. I'm not, saying, I'm not taking that away from you. But it needs to go beyond that, doesn't it? So what must a father do? But 
let's look at a little encouragement. So the first passage of scripture that I wanted to start with is Psalm 127. If you're taking notes, Psalm 127, 3 through 5 says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. It's a great passage of Scripture. Encouraging passage of Scripture. In fact, if you take just that second statement there, like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Your children are arrows. What is an arrow meant for? To attack. Or to load it up and shoot it away from yourself. Get away. Leave the home. No, I'm just kidding. It's not like that. But an arrow is a weapon, isn't it? And so what you do with your children, when you send them away, how are they in their heritage and their upbringing going to attack this world that is going to be against them if they stand for Jesus Christ? But just the opposite. If you do nothing with those children, you don't give them the foundation of God's word and Jesus himself, can that arrow be used against you? Yeah. We're not going to look at that today, but it's an interesting thing to look at in that, in that passage. But what I want to focus on in that verse is children are a heritage. What does it mean, heritage? There are, it literally means that word, a possession, property, inheritance. Now, I know we don't want to view anybody like our children, especially as just property, but it's a possession. It's an inheritance. It's something that's been given to you for a reason. That you, something that you hold tight to, that eventually when you send them on, it is not only what you're giving the world, but hopefully something that is given to them that they then hold on to. Maybe one day when they have their own children, carrying on that heritage, that legacy, so to speak. So as gifts from God, what should we do with the possessions we have? I use this a lot during Christmas time, but like if you're given a gift and you don't do anything with the gift, you never even open the gift, you just take the gift and set it in the corner and forget about it, what good is the gift? No, a gift is meant to be used. And so if we've been given these gifts from God, what do we give to them that they then treasure and possess as, as their own inheritance? And that's the focus of this morning. So we're going to look at two specific examples today. We could look at a myriad. I mean, there is, there is an endless amount of examples we could look at from Scripture. Because remember, everything in Scripture has been written down and recorded and has lasted for thousands of years for our benefit. That is from God's Word. 1 Corinthians 4 tells us that. These things were written for our purpose, our example, so that we could learn from. And so let's learn from a couple guys in Scripture, a couple dads that maybe we haven't considered in their story in regards to being a father. So number one. Let's look at the story of Eli. If you know the story of Eli, Eli in 1 Samuel was a priest, a high priest. He's actually a judge. If you know the story of the judges that God used to, to provide some leadership and accountability for, for his people, but he was also the high priest over Israel. 
And in, later on in life, when he was getting a little bit older, he employed his two sons by the name of Hophni and Phinehas to serve as priests in the oversight of the tabernacle, or they even called it the temple at that time, which they believed at this time was located once Israel settled in the promised land at Shiloh. You guys remember that study from our study of Joshua. But you can read Eli's story in 1 Samuel chapters 1 through 4. But what we do when we look at Eli as a father, we have to look at his sons. And this is one of the reasons why I believe his sons are mentioned in the way that they are in Scripture. Because in 1 Samuel chapter 2, it immediately states, Eli's sons are described as worthless men. Ouch. Worthless men who did not know the Lord. Now I want to pause there for a moment. If they're worthless men who did not know the Lord, why in the world is he employing his sons as priests over God's temple? Is that his son's fault? Or is it dad's fault? Or is there something in the middle we need to look at? But again, we, what we also look at here is that it goes back to what we just talked about. Just because you may be serving the Lord as dad, maybe you're a follower of Christ, maybe you're in ministry doing all that you can to live your life as a disciple of Christ, does not mean your children will follow suit. That's where that heirloom versus anchor comes into play. So Eli may have thought at some point, we don't know because we're not told, that because he was high priest, that he was put in a position to judge Israel and serve over God's temple, that he could employ his sons and it would just maybe, you know, by osmosis, spiritual osmosis, that they would have just followed suit. But that's not the way it happens. We're also told that they treated the offering of the Lord with contempt in 1 Samuel 2. They took advantage of the offering. They did it wrong to take more for themselves than they were supposed to taking advantage of God's people. They were seducing and sleeping with women in the temple, openly. And the reason we know it was openly because then all the people, as Scripture says, and I'm sure that's not 100%, but plenty of witnesses came forward to Eli telling him, your sons are sleeping with women, they're seducing women, they're taking advantage of the people, they're taking more than they should, and they're disrespecting the offering that we're bringing to God. You would think with all those witnesses, Eli, judge, and high priest of Israel would go, something's wrong. Now, he did do his part. He approached his sons, and he confronted them about their grievous sin. But all he did was say, why are you doing this? That was the extent of his action. But they were disrespectful, and they wouldn't even listen to him. So does this reflect so much on his sons or on himself? And the way we look at this is Eli, as high priest, judge over Israel, but father to his sons, should have taken some sort of serious action to, if anything, remove his sons from their position so that God's house, God's people, God's offering 
Everything belonging to God was not taken advantage of or disrespected. But he allowed his sons to continue on. To take advantage of the position. To take advantage of the people. To openly disrespect God. He essentially turned a blind eye to what they were doing. Having been told what they were doing, multiple witnesses, which even according to God's law was what was needed, he turned a blind eye and allowed it to happen. So as a result, God would judge the entire family. His sons eventually would lose their lives in battle. And when a, a witness came from the battlefield and told Eli what happened, he said Eli was sitting on a, a wall or something like that, and he basically fell back in shock, so to speak, and broke his neck and died. Now, are we going to sit here and point a finger at God? No. God is the ultimate judge. And when you disrespect God, and you will especially disrespect Him in His house, in His place of worship, in a position that you are set in, then you are going to be held accountable. And in God's way, this is what needed to happen. So what do we do? What must a father do when his children are caught up in grievous, open sin? It says, first, you must deal with your own sin. Dad, you don't just immediately turn a blind eye to yourself and focus outward. You need to deal with yourself. Eli had some sin that he needed to deal with, and he didn't do that. James tells us, chapter 4, verse 17, Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Eli turned that blind eye to grievous sin against the Lord in his house. So Eli should have dealt with himself first, knowing what he needed to do, and he didn't do it. Second, Eli should have responded boldly, sincerely, with purpose in what his sons were doing, but he didn't. So we must do the same. Boldly and sincerely when our children are in sin. When it talks about accountability in Scripture, that's what we need to do. Hold our children and ourselves accountable to who we know they are in Christ. If we, are, if we have children that have given their lives to the Lord and have proclaimed Jesus Christ, then we as parents, in the gifts that we've been given, have the absolute right to hold them accountable to that faith that they say they have. We can't force Jesus into our children's lives, just like it wasn't forced into us. We had to accept it, and so do our children, and that's one of the hardest things about being a parent. But you have to do whatever you possibly can, because if you believe and stand on God's word as truth, then you do whatever you can to make sure your children your family has that same hope and stands on that solid foundation, the truth of God's word. That's the anchor. That's the anchor. Hebrews 12, 11 says, for the moment all discipline seems painful. How many times have your kids said, I don't like this? Well, of course you don't. Discipline's not fun. It doesn't feel good. But the beautiful thing about God's word says it seems painful rather than pleasant, but later yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who have been trained by it. Discipline is necessary in our homes. 
necessary in the hopes that God speaks, his Holy Spirit moves, and our children grab on to and decide to, for themselves to stand on that anchor. Ephesians 4.15 says, Rather speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Key phrase there. We speak the truth. The truth is hard to hear sometimes, but we do it in love because its effect is for all of us, dads included, to grow up. We can't remain here and expect our children to be here. We all are to grow up. That's that fancy biblical term called sanctification, the pursuit of righteousness, the pursuit of truth, the pursuit of holiness, the pursuit of the perfection of God. We are to grow up in every way. And there has to be a sense, a little sense of hurry, wouldn't you say? It's a little bit of hurry. Because if we let things go, if we just turn a blind eye as Eli did, and we just allow ourselves and allow our children and allow our families to continue in grievous, open, unrepentant sin, what's going to happen? Hearts are going to grow hard. And we don't want to experience what maybe some of us have. Because God will allow those hearts to harden. Romans 124 says, therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts to impurity. God will allow people to experience the sin. If they're choosing sin, God will allow it. And that's a lot of the problem people have with the church. How can a loving God allow all this stuff to happen? Because everybody makes their choice in what they want to pursue in life. But we as fathers, as dads, as leaders of our home, as Christians, we are the spiritual leader. We are the judge. We are the high priest of our home that God has given to us as a gift. So we need to protect. We need to take care of that heritage that has been given to us. Sin cannot be tolerated from ourselves and those who have been given to us by God. Let's look at example number two. Lot. Again, this is where I got a little more confused by, by God. You, Lot? Why Lot? Well, let's take a look. If we remember the story of Lot, we may be a little more familiar with his wife. She was a little salty, but we'll get there in a minute. But Lot was the nephew of Abraham. The nephew of Abraham. Even when Abram was given the call by God, chosen by God, to go from this place to that place. That was the call, right? Take all your stuff and go. And I'll show you where you're to go. And Abram said, okay. At that moment in Genesis chapter 12, we hear they took his wife and all his possessions and Lot, his nephew, and all of his family and possessions, and they went on their way and they traveled. But they got to a certain point where they got to where they were going and they decided, because Abram was extremely wealthy, had a tremendous amount of possessions and animals, and so did Lot. And they 
there was a problem with their animals, their livestock, intermingling, that the caretakers and shepherds of the livestock were having a problem keeping them all separated. And so Abraham and Lot decided to separate at that point. And Abraham, in all of his gracious way, told Lot, his nephew, saying, you take a look, look at everything before you, you decide what you want. And he basically said in scripture, if you decide to go left, I'll go right. If you go right, I'll go left. Amazing when God gave Abraham the keys to the kingdom. God gave Abraham the land. And yet Abraham, in his gracious way to his nephew, said, choose what you want, and we'll separate and, and we'll be okay. So Lot stood at the top of the hill and he looked towards Sodom, down towards the Dead Sea, in that area, the Jordan Valley as it's called. And he said, I like that. It's green. It looks beautiful. I'll take that land. Abraham said, okay, go. And so Lot traveled with his family and possessions down that way, and Abraham went the other way. But his eyes were set upon the land. Lot's eyes were set on the possessions of what he could have, not so much on the Lord. So at first glance, Lot looked towards Sodom. Then eventually Lot moved closer and set up his tent on the outskirts of Sodom. And as scripture tells us, eventually he moved into Sodom. And for those of us that are familiar with our Bible stories, know what Sodom and Gomorrah were all about. They were openly sinful, openly wicked, openly wretched towns, full of sin. Lot knew this and still moved closer and closer and closer to that sin and that way of life because he was more focused on what he had than who he was responsible to. Hayden Robinson said, in any given situation, what you are determines what you see, and what you see determines what you do. Powerful statement. What you are determines what you see, and what you see determines what you do. So this is why it's so important that we fix our eyes on Christ. That's why we come back to that. We fix our eyes anywhere else. Anything other than Christ of this world is going to be darkness and sin. Lot had his heart in Christ, but his eyes were fully invested in the world around him. So because we focus a lot of our attention on being sinners, we're very familiar with 1 John 1, 9 that says, if we confess our sins, he is what? faithful to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness we love that it is so freeing to have that scripture it's encouraging whoo because i know i'm a sinner i know i'm gonna sin but at least i can confess it and i'm okay anything wrong with that mentality it sets yourself up to sin because i can just confess it and god is faithful as long as God is faithful, I can just confess it and he'll forgive me and I'll move on and keep putting myself in harm's way. Rather, maybe we focus on Romans chapter 6, verses 13 and 14 that says, Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life 
and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Listen, for sin will have no dominion over you. None. Since you are not under law, but under grace. How about we do everything possible to remove ourselves from the influence of sin that we know, if we know ourselves, we can be easily and readily just fall into at any given moment. Do what we can to protect ourselves and protect our family from the influence of sin of infiltrating our lives and our homes. See, Lot didn't do that. In fact, it got to the point where if we know the story that God would send angels into Sodom because God was going to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. He was going to destroy the city for lack of anybody in those cities that had faith. And Abraham went to bat for the cities. Say, God, for if there's 50 people in those cities, you would still destroy it? 50 righteous people? And God said, no, if you can find 50, I won't destroy it. But it was still under God's judgment and condemnation. Abraham got to the point of, of working God down to 10. How about 10, God? Would you still destroy the city if I could find 10 people? And he said, if you can find 10, I'll save the cities. Tells you what those cities were like. And so two angels were sent down to Sodom, into the city, and they found Lot. And they knocked on Lot's door, and Lot invited them in the house. And the wicked people of the city came barging into Lot's home, knocking on the door, saying, hey, we saw you take in two men. Give us those men so we could have our way with them. This is the wickedness of this city. Not realizing they were angels of God. And Lot protected the angels over his family to the point of offering his daughters to the men of the city to do with as they please to protect these men. He offered his own children up to wickedness. And when God's judgment was coming down and the angels made it clear that God was going to judge the city and destroy the city, he said, grab your family, we're getting out now. So Lot grabbed his family, his wife, his girls, went to his son, son-in-laws, told him, God's judging the city, you need to come with me now. And his son-in-laws laughed at him. He said, you're out of your mind. That's not going to happen. So his son-in-laws had no respect for Lot as a father or authoritative figure in their life. And so they leave the city, and eventually God destroys the city, but not before his wife. So longed for the pleasure of the city that even an instruction being told, don't look back. And she turned and looked, and God judged her in that moment, turned her into a pillar of salt. And eventually his own daughters so caught up in the lust of their flesh and sin that they even got their own father drunk and slept with him so that they could have children of their own and carry on the family name. The depravity of sin that was allowed to infiltrate the family because who is the gatekeeper of that home? Lot. Father's responsibility that he allowed open sin and wickedness to live amongst it and allow it to infiltrate his home and therefore essentially lost his entire family. But yet, even Lot, his eyes set on the world, was still worthy of salvation in God's eyes. 
Second Peter tells us that Lot was a righteous person, worthy to be saved. But it also tells us that Lot was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over the lawless deeds that he saw and heard. So he allowed himself to be tormented by that rather than remove himself from that situation. We are told in no way that Lot was trying to do his best to evangelize and bring the love of God to Sodom. We're not told that in any respect. But he just wanted the property. He wanted what he wanted. So what must a father do? What do we take away from, from Lot's example? We must continue to grow in our faith, as we talked about. Our own relationship with dependency on the Lord is important. What does Hebrews 5 tell us? For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. You hear that? We need to constantly pursue God's Word, grow up in God's Word, so that God's Word can allow us, by His Spirit, to discern good from evil. Lot didn't do that. He had no powers of discernment. If he did, I think he would have taken a lot stronger action to remove himself from a situation that was destroying his family and eventually destroyed his family. So in so doing, being an example to our children that faith in Christ is a lifelong journey. You don't commit yourself to Christ and then do nothing with it. <clears throat> we have to actively pursue Christ. And in that way, model for our children that life in Christ is a constant pursuit of His Word and doing everything possible to eliminate sin from our sphere of influence. That it doesn't allow itself to come in here or in our home in any respect. But please remember, it is up to our children to decide to have this life on their own. We have to do everything possible to present to them the hope that we have in Christ, but it is up to them to accept or reject. Now, there's a lot of wonderful stories of acceptance in Scripture, aren't there? So we're not denying those. But I think we would be foolish to deny the wicked things of this world. And that is going to be our battle in today's culture and society that we live in. We have to do what we can to protect our family. So in both of these cases, both in Eli and Lot, there is an overarching principle that we as fathers must adhere to. We must speak and model the Word of God in our home. If you decide that your home is going to be built on the foundation of God's Word, that's the first decision you need to make. As a follower of Christ, as a Christian man, husband, and father, is your home going to be built on the foundation, the anchor of God's Word? And if that's the case, and you say yes to that, just like Joshua said, you want to go and worship the, the gods of, uh, of the Amorites and, and everybody else on the other side of the river? Fine, do what you're going to do. But as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. What an emphatic, strong statement to make saying, my house 
is going to serve the Lord. The people in my house have to choose to do that, but my house is going to be founded on the principle and hope and salvation of God. Whether they choose to accept it or not, that's what my house is going to be. If you make that statement, if that's the case, then the responsibility falls on us. It is ours to ensure that our home and all those who live in it are established on God's word. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. The great commandment that is religiously mentioned and recited, memorized in Jewish culture, even to this day. And I think it'd be important for us to do so as well. But I want you to listen to all these words, Deuteronomy 6, 5 through 9. It says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. See where it starts? With us. These words need to be on your heart. And then what? You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. You see what God is saying? It needs to be on your heart, and in from your heart, you need to speak these words. That's why we need to speak and model this life to our children. That is our responsibility as fathers. We can even add Paul's words to this, his spiritually adopted son, Timothy. And the reason I say spiritually adopted is because we know Timothy was raised in a God-fearing home. We know that. By his mother and his grandmother, but a father to Timothy was never mentioned. We don't know if he just wasn't mentioned because he just wasn't mentioned, or if maybe his father was not a follower of God. We don't know. But what we do know is Paul stated that he is my spiritual son. So as an adopted spiritual son, Paul would say these words to Timothy. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. So when Paul commissioned Timothy to be a pastor in Ephesus, he says, you need to continue to fan this flame. And if the charge is there to continue to pursue the things of God, then what's the reverse? That flame will go out. If we don't take the opportunity to continue to fan into flame what we have, it'll burn out because you'll just get enveloped by the darkness of this world. So you hear that encouragement from a, a father to a son, fan into flame that gift you have. He says, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me. Paul was regularly teaching Timothy, raising him as a spiritual son in the word of God. What did he say? He said, follow the pattern of the sound words. So make the words that I've said to you, the words that I gained from Christ, that I've given to you, continue to do it because they are established on the word of God. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So pursue faith in Christ, continue to speak it, but also you need to guard it, protect it, because of its value. 
Look, I know Lot and Eli aren't the most fantastic of examples. I get that. We want Father's Day to, Father's Day to be one of joy, excitement, encouragement. And it is, should be. It's how you're going to take these words, how you're going to be encouraged by them, or, or maybe even a little squeezed by them, convicted by them. But what you ultimately do with these words, with what God is sharing with you as a father to your children. And I'm looking around saying, we got dads in here of very new children, to dads of children that are grown and, and gone. Do you get to pause your fatherhood because they're grown and gone? No, you don't. You are still a dad. You always will be a dad. So there is no quit in this game for you to continue to encourage your children in the things of God. Well, they're not in my home anymore. I don't care. Because you are heirs together. Everybody that comes from your home or is not in your home is a potential heir to the glory of God. And therefore, are they worthy to continue to hear the hope of Jesus Christ? If they're following Christ or not, yeah, the answer is yes. Continue to be that father. So what must we do? Let me wrap this up in a, in a way that the Lord put on my heart uh, a few weeks ago. Because what we do as fathers is in direct correlation to our faith in Christ. How we operate, what we do as dads, as fathers, is going to be in direct correlation to who we are in Christ. The entire life of Christ was predicated and dictated by what he must do. Scripture speaks to that. Luke chapter 2 says, Jesus, speaking of Jesus, I must be in my father's house. Luke 4 says, I must preach the gospel. Luke 17 says, I must suffer. Luke 19, I must have a relationship with those who receive me. Luke 22, Scripture must be fulfilled. And Luke 24, I must suffer and enter glory. You hear what Jesus' life was dictated by? What he must do in obedience to his Father's will. Well, what about us? We can use the exact same Scriptures, but we won't. We'll use more. What must we do in our love and service to Christ? Number one, if your home is going to be founded on the Word of God, then John 3, 7 is for you. We must be born again. You can't give your children the hope of the gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ if you yourself have not received Christ. That just, that's kind of a duh statement. It should make sense. But we must be born again, Scripture says. Now, I'm not, I'm not emphasizing or adding words. This, these are the exact words of Scripture. Romans 6.11 says, we must consider ourselves dead to sin. It's imperative. We must consider ourselves dead to sin. John 3.30 says, he must increase, but I must decrease. Psalm 56.12 says, we must fulfill our commitments to him. What are our commitments to him? What's the great commandment? There's one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Teach these things diligently to your children. Fulfill our commitments to him. Matthew 5.48 says we must be perfect as he is perfect. There's the pursuit of holiness, pursuit of righteousness. 
John 4.24 says we must worship in spirit and truth. Acts 5.29 says we must obey God rather than man. Mark 13.10 says the gospel must be proclaimed. 1 John 4.21 says we must love one another. Colossians 3 says we must forgive. I'll give you one more. Matthew 24.44, we must be ready. Ready for what? Jesus is coming soon. So we do all that we can and take that responsibility seriously of what we must do as a father for ourselves in Christ and those that we've been given as treasures, as gifts, as an inheritance, as a possession from God to anchor them be the anchor man to your family. There is a book that I would love for all of you dads to read. Now again, I, I, this came out before the movie, but the book is called Anchorman. It has nothing to do with the movie, trust me. Because you're either going to be the anchor man for your family, you're going to establish and be the first one to establish your family and its heritage on the things of God. Or you're going to be a link in the chain and carry that on from what was established before. My grandfather, my dad's dad, is the anchor man for our family. My dad was the next in line. And now me and my brother are next in line. We're just links in that chain that has been established that we decided that we needed to carry on. The hope of the gospel of salvation. And got to do what I can to pass that on and, and make that an anchor for my children. And if they decide to grab onto that with all of their heart, then that's their decision. But I've got to do what I can to make sure that that option is before them in every respect. So let me leave you with this. 1 Corinthians 16. Just be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong but let all that you do be done in love. That's the example of Christ. Keep your eyes fixed on Christ. He is our example. Amen?